This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. Dani Tirza is one of the most charming men you'll ever meet. It's almost inconceivable to imagine that he spent most of his life as a military commander. Yes, my name is Dani Tirza, and I'm a retired colonel from the Israeli army. I went to talk to him in his home, in the West Bank settlement of Kfar Adumim. Kfar Adumim is a very nice community on Judea Desert. It's in the way uh, between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. This was a real desert before we came here, and you can see how beautiful the place is because the people came here and they started the community from the beginning like the pioneers. He is, as they say, a man of the land. I know the area very, very well. The Judea and Samaria, I know every part of it, every village of it. I talked with the people there. Most of the people, the Palestinians, know me personally because I did things with negotiating. And negotiating is my second name. So, yeah. Danny's a seasoned negotiator. I took part in all the negotiations with the Palestinians from 1994 till 2007 as the expert of territorial issues and mapping. He was a professional advisor during the Oslo Accords, a part of the Israeli delegation to the failed Camp David talks, and in 2002, he was given an unusual and logistically almost impossible task. Uh, to design and build a security fence. Now, note that Dani calls it the security fence. Not the separation fence, not the separation barrier, and most definitely not the separation wall. That's right. We don't call it a barrier. We call it the security fence because it's built for security. And this is not a border. It's not a separation. It's something that is temporary for security. He's right, you see. That's General Uzi Dayan. Well, I'm a Uzi Dayan. I'm very Israeli. You will never tell it by my accent, but I, I was born here. My parents were born here. I served for a long 36 years, including being the commander of the Central Command and the Deputy Chief of Staff, and finally the National Security Advisor of two Prime Ministers, Barak and Sharon. Like Dani, Uzi, who is now a member of Knesset for the Likud, thinks that terminology matters. We call it the security fence. <laughs> Don't start with, <laughs> you know, new speak about it. It's purely security. People in the world call it the wall because they are pointing to the wall in Berlin. There are a lot of differences between the walls in Berlin and the fence in Israel. Nevertheless, for the last 17 years, when people say the wall in Israel in the same sentence, they're usually referring to something very specific. 
a 440-mile-long barrier, some 95% of which is a sophisticated, multi-layered fence, and some of which, especially in urban areas, is an imposing concrete wall. It was born out of violence and carnage. I was afraid to send my daughter to a school in Jerusalem after 17 public buses were blown up by terrorists. Who will be the crazy man to visit the famous Machne Yuda market of Jerusalem after 15 terror attacks there? Jaffa Street of Jerusalem, about one mile long, and we had a 21 terror attacks. The big discotheque in Tel Aviv. One suicide bomber, 20 youngers were murdered, and 150 were wounded. <laughs> All over the country, just name a place, and there was a terror attack. Israel tried to fight the terror in every possible way. Roadblocks, arrests, trials, covert operations... The government sent a lot of soldiers and a lot of policemen to the streets to protect the public from the Palestinian terror. But that made the opposite. Because if you're sitting inside your house, you're watching out your window, and you see soldiers patrolling near your house. You're going out to the street, there are soldiers there. You're going to the bus station, there are soldiers there. You're going on the bus, there are soldiers there. You're going to the mall, there are soldiers there. Wherever you go, soldiers, policemen, policemen, soldiers. So people became very nervous. March 2002 was particularly bloody. In one month, we lost 128 people that were murdered by terror attacks. And people said to the government, enough is enough. We cannot live at such level of terror. Do something, build something. People were demonstrating all over the country. That's when Prime Minister Arik Sharon approved a plan to create a separation. And Colonel Dani Tirza was the man for the job. So I was the bad guy that walked on the ground that had to take the hard decisions. He was in charge of determining the route of the barrier and had to balance not only security concerns, but also humanitarian ones, environmental considerations, national parks, wildlife, water, archaeology, international law. I said to my people, there is no problem. There are challenges. The practice was to find solutions, not to find problems. Things had to happen fast because terror attacks continued to rage. A three billion shekel program quickly grew and grew. In the end, it cost us 11. And is the fence completed today? No, the fence is not completed yet. uh, Because there are some places that we constructed only temporary fences, especially around the Israeli settlements blocks. Do you believe that... Israel and Israelis are safer as a result of the construction of a security fence? Of course. <laughs> the fence stopped the terror. It isn't just Dani who makes that claim. Here's Uzi Dayan once again. Once you have a security fence, it really decreases very, very much the number of people who are killed. It's very, very effective. And uh, it proved itself. We actually cut down the losses uh, from uh, more than 1,000 people who were murdered in a year. And right now, uh, it goes down to 5, 10, dozen people. It's, it's a dramatic change. 
But of course there's another side to the efficacy. Many people's lives were greatly impacted by the building of this barrier. And as he selected its exact route, Danny was acutely aware of that. So one of our first decisions was not to destroy or to evacuate even one Palestinian house by building the fence. And we have to find a way how to do it. So in some places we just constructed new roads. In other places we put uh, gates in the fence only for one family. Even one house was not evacuated or destroyed. I tried everywhere to do it in a way that it will minimize the damage. You have to do the duty, but find the way to do it. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So this is the second episode of our Wall mini-series, in which we're telling the tales of some of the country's most important walls. Last episode, we were at the Kotev, together with Judith Schwartz, a Palestinian woman with an unusual past who gave birth in the middle of the Six-Day War. And today, we're looking at THE Wall, perhaps the most divisive symbol of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But as usual, we'll try to go beyond the politics, to the people. Danny's wall is one with which we're familiar. Seen from our side, it represents security, stability, safety. It allows us to sleep at night. Because people really were getting killed here. Often. Daily. It was scary. But when Danny and all of us go to bed, there are other people, really close by, going to bed too. And from their perspective, looking out of their window, the same wall represents something different altogether. Not safety or security, but rather lack of freedom. These are our neighbors, regular people. And without getting into political arguments about the wall, yes or no, it's important to hear their stories, too. So our episode today, The Wall, Part 2. The Other Side. For everything this fence-slash-barrier-slash-wall represents to people on both sides, it's easy to forget that it's an actual physical structure. And as our producer Joel Shupak discovered, some people have found surprising ways of using it. Act 1. The Writing on the Wall. Here's Joel. Daniel Anastas stands outside his home in the Palestinian city of Bethlehem. In his right hand, an old claw hammer. In front of him, the wall. I'm about to chop some pieces of the wall. He's in his 20s, thin, with large friendly eyes and a patchy red beard. Bits of concrete crumble off the wall. Daniel collects them in his palm, 
But he's not some local vandal or a terrorist slowly carving out a tunnel. Daniel has a different plan for the wall. To make art out of it? Later, he'll arrange and glue the chipped-off bits on pieces of wood, spelling out messages like peace or hope. But most people in Bethlehem, they just plain old hate this wall. I hope the wall is destroyed. I heard something like this from pretty much everyone I talked to there. But that hasn't stopped some of them, the Daniels of the world, from actually using the wall itself. And there are a lot of things you can do with the wall. You can point a projector at it, and suddenly it's a movie screen. Or you can attach a basketball hoop, and you've got a makeshift court. I saw both of these creative uses in Bethlehem. But the main thing I saw... I'm wondering if you could just tell me some of the things that you're seeing on the wall. Okay, at the moment in front of me, there's some cows. Paintings. Graffiti. Murals. There's some children building a sandcastle with a watchtower on top. A boxer, a very young girl with green eyes. The wall is covered in art. Portraits of Palestinian heroes, slogans of solidarity, and painted fantasies of overcoming this barrier. Like a tall ladder that reaches the top, or huge painted cracks with blue skies peeking through. All of it overlapping, interacting, and shifting on a daily basis. Artists from all over the world have turned the wall into an oddly democratic art gallery, a vast concrete canvas free-for-all. Here, you can find something as mundane as... Happy 50th birthday, Andy. Right next to some of the most famous street art in the world. That's the real Banksy. Yeah, yeah, that's a more recent one. Most of the messages are political, like a massive portrait of Donald Trump locking lips with Bibi Netanyahu, or... I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. James Baldwin. Palestine will be free. The revolution won't be televised. It will be on Netflix. (laughs) That's cool. And then there are statements that are much less contentious. Life would be boring without blueberries. But there's one message on the wall you simply can't ignore. Allah taxi driver Bethlehem. Allah taxi driver Bethlehem. Taxi driver Bethlehem. Allah taxi driver Bethlehem. Allah taxi driver Bethlehem. It's everywhere. Need a taxi, just call Allah. 972-522-731610. A taxi driver named Allah has turned a wall of powerful messages into his own personal billboard. The simple ads in thick handwritten all caps are scribbled all over the place in black paint, surrounded as they are by inspiring MLK or Nelson Mandela quotes They're definitely, well, a bit less poetic. But I wondered if there was more to the story. A la Taxi Driver Bethlehem, I wanted to meet this guy. Allah is not a hard man to get a hold of. Where are you now? I mean, he did graffiti his phone number all over town. When I called him, he was just a block away. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Ala Asakera is 37, a big man with a meaty handshake. He looks like he could be your high school wrestling coach. Gelled hair, a manicured goatee, and those plastic Ray-Bans everyone seems to have. His are purple. You can come over here, please, because of the... Yeah, he invited yeah. me into his yellow taxi van to talk. 
The van was new. A vanilla air freshener dangled off the rearview mirror. Allah, and that's Allah, not to be confused with Allah. Allah is mean God. With H. My name's without H. A L A A. Allah. 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 Yeah. H or no H, Allah never really planned to be a taxi driver. His dad was a chef, so he wanted to be one too. As a teenager in the 90s, he learned all the secrets of making shawarma and prepared hundreds of kilos of it every day. At the time, just around the signing of the Oslo Accords, Bethlehem was full of tourists, and Allah was happy to feed them. It was very good life actually here. Christian pilgrims had, of course, been coming to Bethlehem for centuries to visit the site of Jesus' birth. Even Israeli Jews used to pop over from Jerusalem for a meal. But when Allah turned 20, in the fall of 2000, the Second Intifada broke out. And we are following some breaking news out of Jerusalem. Dozens have been reportedly injured. Hundreds of people have been wounded and several killed as a Palestinian demonstration turned violent. And suddenly all those tourists who filled his restaurant stopped coming. Most of the people afraid to come here because they think it's not safety. Allah was afraid he'd lose his job. Of course, we are worried about that. We think like maybe the, the, our business will be stopped one day. And that was a reasonable fear. Unemployment in Bethlehem more than tripled during the Second Intifada. Almost a third of the men in town were out of work. Restaurants closed. Souvenir shops shuttered. Not enough people coming here and it was like, like ghost town. And then in 2003, Israel built the wall. It made it much harder for Palestinians to get in and out of Bethlehem. And that's when Allah started looking for more work to add to his meager wages from the empty restaurant. How did you decide to become a taxi driver? No other job. But this was kind of a strange choice. You see, when he started, Allah didn't even have a driver's license. And besides, the taxi drivers who were already working barely had any customers. But foolishly, or maybe brilliantly, none of that seemed to deter him. Allah got behind the wheel anyway. He scraped by like this for years. Taxi driver during the day and the evening I go to prepare shawarma. He got married, had kids. Two girls and two boys. And all the while, the wall that had been the backdrop of his life was slowly being transformed. In 2005, the British street artist known as Banksy showed up to what was still a bare concrete surface and started painting. Before long, a very different kind of pilgrim coming to Bethlehem. People from all over the world came to see what Banksy had done and to add their own mark. A cottage industry of souvenir shops sprang up to cater to them. Think magnets and handbags printed with local Banksy art, like a dove wearing a bulletproof vest or a little girl with pigtails frisking a soldier. And some of these shops got pretty creative. I mean, where else in the world can you buy a classic nativity scene carved out of olive wood? with the separation wall running down the middle of it. Okay, ready, set, go. Some shops even keep spray paint on hand and charge folks like these Japanese tourists to use it. Shake the can. They used a stencil to paint a kneeling woman struck by an arrow. Wow, that's pretty. Not everyone in Bethlehem, however, is thrilled about all this attention. I think it's good, and at the same time, it's not good. This is Mohammed, 
who works at one of those souvenir shops. On the one hand, he said, It's bringing a lot of tourists here. But there's another side to it, too. Without graffiti, we show the real wall, how it looks like. The real wall. He means that the art can prevent people from seeing the wall for what, in his eyes, it actually is. An enormous concrete barrier to freedom. The paintings take something ugly and make it beautiful. They color wash it, if you will. And this is coming from someone whose job depends on that art. In 2017, Banksy returned to Bethlehem, this time to open a boutique hotel directly facing the wall. He hoped it would bring even more people to see the wall and the reality of life on this side of it. It worked. Many new tourists showed up. Allah saw his opportunity. I've got a taxi, he thought to himself. I like talking to people. So he started offering tours for these hotel guests. A friend of his actually ran a little shop next door where people could learn how to make graffiti stencils, rent ladders, and buy spray paint. It was called, wait for it, the Walmart. One day, Allah was hanging out there. I came to this shop a lot. I was seeing like people come here and make stencils. For the first time, he thought about writing on the wall himself. I should do something, why not? So he made a stencil. First, taxi in big letters. Then, writing my name, my Instagram account, my WhatsApp. Allah, taxi driver Bethlehem, was born. It didn't take long before someone called. One week, people start to call me. Uh, hello, this is Allah with us. I said, yeah, I'm Allah. Who are you? He like, yeah, we get your name at the wall. We want to do the tour with you. And then he thought, why spray just one ad when there's so much wall I could paint on? No one can stop me. So we got more black spray paint, and pretty soon, Allah taxi driver Bethlehem was everywhere. Tourists passing by started to wonder about this mythical figure. Who's this guy? What he did here? Why do people like him so much? <laughs> and it turned out he was a pretty great tour guide. In just a couple years, his tours have become a hit. On TripAdvisor, he has over 150 rave reviews. You see here, like, look, great day with Allah the taxi driver. Allah the best taxi driver, you made our day. Well, who argues with TripAdvisor? I signed up for one of his tours. So welcome to Palestine, welcome to Bethlehem. He drove us to see some famous Banksy art and a refugee camp. This wall is eight meters high and two meter electric fence in the top. Electric fence? Yes, electric fence in the top. If you need any question also, I'm ready for answer. The young Filipino couple on the tour with me loved it. We found him. He's so very popular here. Even we spent four hours. The deal is yeah. two hours, but yeah. it's fine. Yeah. I, make, I need you to be happy. <laughs> we enjoyed it. Don't worry, guys. Okay. Have a nice day. All the love and praise he receives Bye-bye. made me wonder. Was everyone really on Team Allah? Allah, do you think anyone doesn't like that your name is all over the wall? Maybe taxi drivers only. <laughs> That's it. Taxi drivers, they don't like it. Maybe because, like, they are jealous or something like that. So, about those other taxi drivers. When I first crossed the checkpoint into Bethlehem, there was a swarm of them waiting for me. I talked to a few of them. One guy, Taufik, said he'd been waiting there since 6 a.m. Uh, what's the time now? 
like two o'clock. You, you haven't had any customers? Yes, yeah. Still just waiting. Did you ever think maybe you, you should write your name on the wall? I like it's enough. I like it's enough. This is another driver, Mohammed. Maybe we have like 1,000 taxi, everybody who do this name here, it's not okay. It's not normal, you know. <laughs> it's not normal to write his name or his number. No one would really say much more than that. I got the feeling it was just the kind of thing that wasn't done. Sort of a no-no in the world of taxi driver etiquette. And even if it worked for Allah, it probably wouldn't do the same thing for them. It's more than just the graffiti ads. He's an entrepreneur. A guy that now needs Google Calendar to manage all his bookings. Tomorrow is Clara. She want to do the tour of Jericho Dead Sea. There's another guy, his name Max, from Germany. Do you feel bad for other taxi drivers? That of are... course. But you know, I'm not putting my money, for example, in my pocket. I put them for the, our family, to feed our children. When you, when you have a business, you're not thinking for other people. This is your business. As successful as Allah has become, there's still a constant worry that tourism and his income will dry up. Even next month, I have more than 10 reservations, like five of them cancel. Because the issue yesterday between Gaza and... The day before we spoke, a rocket from Gaza destroyed a house north of Tel Aviv and injured several people. Any small happened like this, they stop business. Next week, maybe there is like war in Gaza Strip. If there is war in Gaza Strip, no tourists coming even in West Bank. For many in Bethlehem, this kind of uncertainty quickly leads to despair. But not for Allah. We hope tomorrow better than today. We hope the day after the t- tomorrow is better than tomorrow. We cannot also just sit feet on top of feet. Yeah. We have to work. We have to fight for work to feed our family. Allah has gone from shawarma maker to the most famous taxi driver in Bethlehem. Still, there's one other way he sees himself. You know, when you travel into any country, first people you meet taxi drivers. If you have a good experience, you feel like, you know, you are happy from this country. Allah is an ambassador. Exactly. And to him, part of that is a responsibility to make sure his guests see the situation here through his eyes. To show the people true what's happening here, what's going on. See how no freedom for us. See how the, some family, they don't find like bread to eat daily. We cannot change it. But we have to make this wall actually like, like cinema to show the people how this wall is bad for us. Everyone come here, what he feel, write it at the wall. What you have in your mind, which image you have, write it on the wall. And that's exactly what Allah did. Even if what he had in his mind was an advertisement. In the afternoon, I tagged along as Allah dealt with an engine issue. Fuck to this car. We went all over town to find a mechanic. You know, I, I would like to go to the other mechanic garage. I don't, I don't trust that mechanic. Fuck to him. We drove to the edge of Bethlehem, where the building stopped and rolling hills began. Beautiful. All Palestine is beautiful. Still, in the distance, we could see the wall carving up the landscape. The art on the wall is in constant flux. New quotes are painted over portraits, which were painted over even older murals. But ironically, Allah's message is the most enduring of all. There's an understanding that no one covers his name. At the Walmart, that shop that sells supplies for tourists to spray paint the wall. They tell the people, okay, paint anywhere, but 
uh, a lot of taxi driver he feel mad if someone bent his name over actually <laughs> because my name I don't like someone to remove me from this place on the surface his message is need a taxi call me but after spending a day with Allah I understood that it's saying something else too it's saying here I am in the shadow of the wall making a living feeding my family not giving up and on a wall full of painted doves and peace signs maybe that message is the most hopeful one of all Joel Shupak Dani Tirza's route has been challenged many times and on several occasions also modified. Was it very frustrating to you when the Supreme Court forced you to uh, change your uh, proposed uh, route? Yes. Uh, you have to understand that we were in time of war, we were working days and nights, and uh, the Palestinians apply to the Israeli Supreme Court. There is no other country in the world that you are not a citizen of this country and you can apply to the Supreme Court. But in Israel, they open it to the Palestinians and we had 124 cases at a very short time. And I had to be there to defend the decisions that I took. Well, I'm not a lawyer, but from 124 cases, I lost only five. But I learned from these five cases more than all the other. Act two, eight days a week. Here is Ariana Skybell. Eight days a week. Do you want to just introduce yourself? Well, uh, my name is Hassan Muammar. I am from Batir village. I'm trying to be one of the good residents of this village, so that's what I'm going to explain you about my village later on. I met Hassan outside Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Okay, so um, we're going to go get on a bus. Yes, let's go. Batir is only about three kilometers from the nearest houses in West Jerusalem. But getting there takes a lot longer than you'd expect. I took two hours this morning to cross the checkpoint. We got off the bus where the road dead ends at a massive concrete wall. Here we're just getting inside the checkpoint and these are the gates where you have to prove that uh, you have a permission. I am one of the lucky people. We made our way through a series of floor-to-ceiling metal turnstiles. Another gate, and another gate, and another gate. We exited the checkpoint into a sea of taxi drivers and pop-up market stalls. We got to Hassan's car and started the drive down the winding road that leads to Batir. So here we are officially entering Batir. Batir has a long history. Its origins can be traced back to the Bronze Age, and to the town of Beitar, the last Jewish stronghold of the revolt against the Romans in the 2nd century CE. It was here, many believe, that the Jewish rebel leader, Shimon Bar Kokhba, was killed by the Romans. It's been settled continuously, at least since the 7th century, when Beitar, now Batir, became a predominantly Muslim village. Yalla, let's go! The village is built on a pastoral mountainside that slopes into a lush valley. Down below is the Jaffa to Jerusalem Railroad, first opened in 1892. 
This serene landscape has seen Jews, Romans, Mamluks, Ottomans, Brits, Jordanians, and now, of course, Palestinians. But throughout it all, one feature has remained the same, the agricultural terraces. So these are the famous terraces of Batir. The painstakingly constructed terraces are part of an ancient and sophisticated irrigation system built by the Romans. It's been in use now for over two millennia. This is how it works. Fresh water from seven different springs in the area flows into a large reservoir. From there, the water is diverted into a complex matrix of stone canals that surround and then connect each terrace. And in those terraces, farmers grow eggplants, almonds, lemons, and many other herbs and vegetables, just as their ancestors have been doing since antiquity. This place called Al-Jinan. Al-Jinan, it means the paradise. And this is the place where the farmers, they took care of since thousands of years. There are eight extended families or clans in Batir. And because water has always been a scarce resource in these parts, they had to figure out a fair system to divide it. So to this day, the families take daily turns accessing the water. But because there are eight families, in this village, the saying goes, a week is eight days long. As we wandered through the terraces, a farmer was busy harvesting vegetables with his wife and young daughter. The girl reached for a red chili pepper. Don't eat that, her father warned. It will burn. The farmer's wife shoved fresh sage into our hands. Living off the land has been the way here for generations. But in 1948, when the war broke out, it seemed this ancient rhythm of life was about to end. Clashes between Jewish and Arab forces engulfed the region. Nightly raids and counter-raids ended in bloodshed and freshly dug graves. Many Batiris feared for their lives and fled. This created a vicious cycle. With every family that left, fewer remained to defend Batir, and the more vulnerable the village became, the more families took off. Batir was almost empty, and Hassan Mustafa, a local journalist and poet, knew he had to do something. So he gathered the remaining men in the village, and together, they hatched a plan. They created the appearance that there was life inside the village. That's Hassan's daughter, Nadia. For instance, in the morning, they'd hang laundry out to dry, and they'd place mannequins wearing kafiyas in the windows of the homes so that it would look like they were armed men in the houses. At night, Hassan and his men would light large bonfires and place lamps in the windows of all the empty homes. All this was done in order to give the impression that Batir wasn't occupied by the army and that all the villagers were still there. It was Hassan's wily way of saying, we're here, we're armed, don't mess with us. And amazingly, the Israeli paramilitary forces left the seemingly bustling village alone. When the fighting subsided, Hassan Mustafa was hailed as a hero. But his next mission proved to be even harder than saving Batir from war. Now he would have to save it from peace. 
See, in 1949, when Jordanians and Israelis signed the Armistice Agreements, they drew the border in green pencil on a map. And that green line? It spliced Batir in two. Most of the village would be in Jordan, but a large chunk of it, farmland, terraces, a school, and a number of houses, would be in Israel. And that seemed untenable. So when Hassan Mustafa heard that a delegation of Israeli and Jordanian officials was on its way to inspect the new border, he decided to take action. Eliak Owana, also known as Abu Anan, was there that day. I had just finished second grade, and I think my memory of those days as an eight-year-old is better than my memory now as an 80-year-old. Abu Anan stood with the other villagers. He watched, terrified, as the scene unfolded. There were about a hundred of us present that day. Hassan Mustafa was the symbol of courage. He walked down the hill by himself. We were all sure he was going to get shot. He reached the train station and waited for the Israeli jeeps to arrive. Then he insisted on speaking to whomever was in charge. And that man was... Musa Dayan. What happened next has long since entered the realm of local mythology. There are like 50 different versions of this story. But in my favorite one, Hassan marched right up to the one-eyed general and said, Before you shoot me, let's have a cigarette. Dayan must have agreed and, maybe following a smoke, told his men to pull out a map of the region. Hassan Mustafa told them, you can keep your map in your pocket. The people of Mecca know Mecca better than anyone else. So they all had coffee, and then Hassan said, follow me. Hassan walked with Dayan and showed him the exact borders of Batir's land. Eventually, the two struck a deal. The people of Batir would continue to own and cultivate all their land on the Israeli side, and in exchange, they would protect the railway from any harm. Hassan Mustafa had saved Batir a second time. And for many years, that's how it stayed. Hassan died in 1961. Six years later, following the Six-Day War, Batiris would go from living under Jordanian rule to being under Israeli occupation. But even that didn't drastically shift day-to-day farming in the village. The spring water continued to flow into the reservoir, and from there into the canals, and from there into the terraces. The farmers continued to work their eight-day weeks, warn their kids not to eat hot chili peppers, and live their lives. Then, the start of the second millennium brought with it a second intifada. As violence mounted, the Israeli government doubled down on a multi-billion shekel plan to build a barrier near the Green Line. Batir watched with dread as neighboring villages were surrounded, cut off, or divided by the wall. They knew they were living on borrowed time. Like several other Palestinian villages facing the same situation, the Batiris hired a lawyer and filed a petition to the Israeli Supreme Court. But by this point, Israeli courts had heard dozens of barrier wall cases— many on a much larger scale than Batir. Here's Mikhail Sfard, one of the lawyers on the case. 
a cord that is used to deal with thousands of dunams that are being taken is less sensitive to relatively smaller amounts of land. As you can tell, he wasn't too optimistic about Batir's chances. They had a very, very weak case. The Batiris, we've already seen, are a resourceful bunch. But this time around, a friendly cigarette and a cup of black coffee weren't going to cut it. So the people in the village and neighboring friends started to brainstorm ideas. They launched a social media campaign and teamed up with Israeli activists to organize an awareness concert. But nothing seemed to be working. That's when they turned to a strange group of professionals who had been hanging out in the village. Three people going around with their pencils and crayon, uh, making sketches over an aerial photograph and mapping, counting the number of trees, uh, measuring the distances between the dry stone walls, etc. Really, the village thought they were crazy. These three people, they were uh, mad. This is their leader. Giovanni. My name is Giovanni Fontana Antonelli. I'm an architect and until 2012 I was serving as a program specialist for culture for UNESCO in, uh, in Ramallah. Among many other things, UNESCO selects world heritage sites. Places like Machu Picchu, Vatican City, or even the Statue of Liberty. Back in 2003, Giovanni had heard about Batir and its ancient irrigation system. He thought it might be a potential heritage site. So he went to investigate. The impression I still keep with me very vivid is that uh, it is a very rural area. The silence prevail. It's like entering into, into the nature. It was love at first sight. Giovanni set up a little office in Batir and began researching the area. He even hired a small staff, which included Hassan Mamar, the guide who took me through the checkpoint. Hassan grew up in Batir, but his whole life he dreamt of leaving. I just want to go drive a car two, three hundred kilometers. No one tells me what are you doing. To, to go away, to have fun, to enjoy, to, to go to the beach. That was a big dream. So we always used to go to the Dead Sea. But come on, guys, this is not a sea. This is a floating sea. We need a real sea. After he graduated university in Cairo, he returned to Batir and joined Giovanni's team. As the work progressed, he began to appreciate his hometown in an entirely new way. I start seeing things on the ground that it's always been in front of me, but I didn't recognize it before. Hassan's epiphany wasn't exactly shared. Many other Batiris were only marginally interested in Giovanni and his curious project. But with dwindling legal hope, a Facebook campaign and benefit concert that didn't seem to greatly impact the looming reality of the wall the locals started to view the UNESCO project in a new light. Here's Mikhail Svard, the lawyer, once again. If the place is declared World Heritage Site, and if we can prove that the erection of the barrier would destroy that site, it was clear to me that we will win. You see, becoming a UNESCO World Heritage Site comes with a lot of prestige and funding. But most importantly, at least for Batir, it comes with the legal protection of international treaties. Treaties that would make building a tall, concrete wall in the middle of the village significantly harder. But getting World Heritage status is wildly difficult. 
Campaigns can often last years. And besides, some members of the Palestinian delegation to UNESCO were actually promoting another higher-profile site in Palestine, the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. Still, Giovanni's team was determined to try. This meant they would need to complete a detailed survey of the land as part of the submission to UNESCO. We made a survey for 12,000 donums of batir, meter by meter, so we know every single thing on the ground. They submitted the survey to UNESCO and held their breath. Meanwhile, on the legal front with the Supreme Court, matters didn't appear promising. In a country in which security concerns typically trump environmental or historical conservation, the odds were stacked against them. But all the work they had done for the UNESCO proposal now came in handy. They took the army's map for the proposed wall and overlaid it on their survey. And we saw exactly where it's going to cross. Oh my God, that was a big shock. Before that, we will never understand the impact of the wall before it's built. We will realize the impact of the wall after it's built. Because the survey was so detailed, Giovanni, Hassan, and their team could show the Supreme Court exactly how many terraces, how many ancient canals, even how many individual trees the planned wall would destroy. It was no longer arguments about freedom of movement or human rights. It was about nature and preservation. And the damage was undeniable. On the morning of their first court appearance, the people of Batir made their way to Jerusalem. We gathered around 80 persons, elderly from the village, and we managed to get them all permits and this. And we took two buses from Batir. It's a big uh, hall, the biggest courtroom in the Supreme Court. And it was all packed with villagers from Batir. But it wasn't just the local residents who were in Safard's corner. A chorus of experts, including the Israeli Nature and Parks Authority, endorsed the survey's findings. They all agreed that building a wall would irreversibly ruin the ancient terraces. And there was no counter-expert opinion. I mean, the army made a lot of pledges, did promise, did say that our assessment is inflated, but couldn't bring a real expert opinion that would say, no, no, no. I remember seeing the judges when it dawned on them that this is not an easy case. The wheels of justice, especially in Israel, can turn at a snail's pace. The Batiris anxiously awaited the court's ruling, and there was still no word from UNESCO, even though it had been more than two years since they submitted the proposal. So there was a kind of um, uh, runoff. What will happen first? Will the court make a ruling? Will UNESCO declare it a, a World Heritage Site? Some Batiris started to give up hope. But then... I'll call out the names of the countries in the English alphabetical order. In June 2014, UNESCO voted. Algeria, Colombia, Croatia, Finland, Germany. I now have the results. We got 11 yes and 3 no. Palestine, congratulations. You have succeeded in inscribing your site. Just as Fard had predicted, the Israeli Supreme Court was swayed. Shortly after Batir's UNESCO triumph, the judges in Jerusalem issued their own decision, which made it practically impossible to build the wall in Batir anytime soon. So for us, it was a victory. Hassan felt like he could breathe again. Actually, it's a feeling that uh, I never felt before. A feeling of victory. It's the first time maybe I, I felt this in my life. Ironically, or perhaps poetically, 
The successful campaign to preserve Batir has brought about the biggest change the village has seen in years. After the double victory, successfully fighting the wall in the court and gaining UNESCO recognition, the sleepy agricultural village gradually blossomed into an ecotourism hotspot of sorts. Hassan Mamar opened up a restaurant and a guest house, and others have started projects like a women's heritage kitchen and a CSA. But there's one thing that remains unchanged, something that is ingrained deep down in Batir's DNA. There's this term in Arabic, samud. It means to endure, to stand one's ground, to remain firmly planted on one's land no matter what. Batiris, like the fresh springs that have been watering their terraces since time immemorial, are here to stay. And I wouldn't bet against them. After all, they work eight days a week. Ariana Skybell. Ariana is a freelance journalist and a Dorot Fellow, based in Jerusalem and Washington, D.C. Batir's court case actually took place after the end of Dani's tenure as the chief planner of the fence. But even now, in his civilian life, he's completely involved in the nitty-gritty details of it all. He leads tours to see the fence and the wall, and talks about it around the world. Before I left his home, with its gorgeous vistas of the Judean hills and Vadi Kelt, I asked Dani about the future. Walls and fences and borders are, always and everywhere, temporary. One day they'll change. So what was it like, I wondered, to spend so much time, so much energy, on something that's here today and gone tomorrow? His answer was hopeful. Well, I myself, I want to be the one that will take off the fence at the day that we will have peace agreement with our neighbors. I really, really believe that this day will come. I pray for it three times a day. I myself, I believe that this fence will be taken down and I want to be the one that will do it. But till that day comes... The fence-slash-wall is still with us. And still, as we'll see in our final story of the episode, attracting a lot of attention. If Allah made the wall in Bethlehem into his own private billboard, our next story is also about the world of advertisement, but from a different perspective, back on our side of the barrier. What you need to know to start out is what any Israeli TV viewer would have known at the time. It's 2009, Cellcom is one of the largest telecommunication companies in Israel. And they're known for their emotional, heartwarming ads. Like the one in which a tired-looking guy is singing softly as he packs up his things at work. It's late and he's the last one left in the office. He continues singing as he gets into his car, drives home, and enters his living room. That's when we see his beautiful girlfriend asleep on the couch, his voice coming through the cell phone lying next to her. He takes off his earpiece, he'd been singing to her the entire time, and rubs her nose. 
She wakes up with a big smile. Talk for free to those you love, we're told. In July 2009, Cellcom came out with another ad. But this one was unlike any other before or since. Act 3, Yofi Tofi. Here's Yoshi Fields. The infamous ad opens with Israeli soldiers in an army jeep, driving in an arid landscape alongside the concrete separation wall. Something, we don't quite see what, hits the hood of their jeep. Alarmed, they get out of the vehicle, guns in hand, ready for combat. But we soon see it was just a soccer ball. So they kick it back. And then, a few seconds later, the ball comes flying back over, once again landing on the hood of the jeep. Game on. Soccer volleyball over the wall. The soldiers call up their army friends. Women cheer as the men show off their skills and kick the ball over the wall. What do we all want? The voiceover asks. Just a little fun. Shachar Sega was the commercials director. He's a cynical guy with a dry sense of humor. He says things like, commercials aren't real art, or I'm in it for the money. You know, you shoot a commercial for two days, you edit it for another three days, they tell you you're a genius and you move on. But underneath all the cynicism, Shachar is really just a softy. In fact, he's produced some of Israel's most sentimental ads. And in 2009, he was working with Cellcom on their new branding campaign. The idea was to create a cellular phone company which says, I am the essence of being an Israeli. And he was proud of the soccer commercial. I think it was nicely done. (laughs) The ad had all the ingredients of a winner. The upbeat music. The uplifting message. The most banal message in the world, like we are all human beings and let's play football and hope for the best. But more than anything, it included something which Shahar claims had never before been featured in an Israeli TV ad. This huge concrete wall, endless. It's a very, very strong symbol. Shahar's team actually built a replica of the separation wall just for the ad. They hired actors to play the soldiers filmed aerial shots. The whole thing was a big production, and both Shahar and Selkom expected it to be a hit. But when it aired... All hell broke loose. The TV commercial that divided Israel, one headline read. Phone firm's West Bank wall gag fails to amuse, declared another. It quickly became the most talked about ad on TV. Selkom execs were shocked. You see... They thought the public would embrace what they saw as a lighthearted ad about coexistence. But many people, especially on the left, wanted to see the ad taken off the air. I was pissed. It makes absolutely no sense, and it's not entertaining. That's Yossi Brahman, one of the many lefties to speak out publicly against the ad. Their biggest objection? It's only showing the Israeli side. Where are the Palestinians in the picture? Why aren't they characters in the commercial? At the time, Yossi was a journalist for the travel and culture publication Time Out Tel Aviv. And even though he didn't see himself as an activist, he felt he had to do something. So together with his friend, Alan Rome, they created a Facebook group called I Too Got Nauseous, watching the new Cellcom ad. Hundreds of enraged viewers quickly joined. 
Ahmed Tibi, an Arab member of Knesset, also wrote to Cellcom, demanding the ad be taken down. The barrier separates families and prevents children from reaching schools and clinics, he told Reuters at the time. Yet the advertisement presents the barrier as though it were just a garden fence in Tel Aviv. A successful ad has to be memorable. But it also has to bring people together with a united message. This ad was more like a Rorschach test. What its creators had seen as a playful and peaceful game, many of the viewers interpreted as a complete denial of reality. But there were also those on the left who came to the ad's defense. In fact, Yariv Oppenheimer, then the head of Peace Now, one of the largest left-wing advocacy groups in Israel, praised the commercial. It doesn't make fun of the wall or making fun of the situation. It's a surprising commercial that shows you the other side in a totally different perspective. It's not the enemy, it's your friend. What can be more pissnik than that? The commercial only aired in Israel. But as the buzz surrounding it got louder, more and more Palestinians in the territories started to see it online. In the West Bank town of Bil'in, Palestinian activists led by Abdallah Abu Rahma decided to create a counter video, a real-life reenactment of sorts, shot during an actual demonstration. They even used the same playful music from the Cellcom ad as the soundtrack of their video. But of course, the protests they filmed didn't follow the script the ad's actors had used. In our video, we show the truth about we are on the other side of the wall, and you can see what's the react of the soldiers. Instead of showing the Israeli side of the wall, Abdallah's video showed the Palestinian one. In that action, I remember around 150 persons. During the protest, Palestinians kicked soccer balls over to the Israeli side and waited to see whether, just like in the ad, an impromptu soccer game would ensue. It didn't. Rather than having the balls bounce back, they were bombarded with tear gas. Abdallah and his fellow activists uploaded the video to YouTube. It got more than 180,000 hits. I went to speak with him where this all took place. And we shot the football from this area to... Standing amongst the shrubs, we looked up at the concrete wall. I took out my cell phone and asked Abdallah whether we could watch the original ad together. Usually patient and even keeled, I could see the frustration in his eyes. I want the photo of the other side. Where is the other side? No, this is not true. What's in the advertising is not true. Cellcom and McCann Erickson, the advertising company that produced the ad, refused my repeated request for an interview. But back in 2009, with pressure mounting to remove the ad, Cellcom released the following statement. Cellcom's core value, it read, is communication between people regardless of religion, race, or gender. It also claimed that the commercial illustrated the possibility for people of diverse opinions to engage in, quote, mutual entertainment. But the Israeli public was neither persuaded nor pacified. Two weeks after the ad first aired, Globes, an Israeli financial newspaper, conducted a survey about the ad. 68% of the respondents reported having a negative reaction to it. Cutting their losses, Cellcom decided to take the commercial 
off the air. Today, 10 years later, Cellcom is still one of the largest telecommunication companies in Israel. The wall still stands. And judging by the amount of chatter I heard on the street about the Women's World Cup, everyone still seems to love soccer. But heated public debates about coexistence or the portrayal of Palestinians in mainstream Israeli media, that's changed quite a lot. Oh, you, you can't even, even if it's giving them an immaterial existence, it's putting Palestinians kind of on our TV screens. But I don't think that you would do that now. That's Nick John, a sociologist who teaches in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the Hebrew University. I asked him if he could imagine an ad like the Cellcom one being made today. To demonstrate how times have changed, he took me back to the Israel of 2009. Back then, he explained, the wall was relatively new, and its impact was still very much a topic of discussion. Fast forward 10 years, for most Israelis, both the wall and Palestinians are out of sight, out of mind. The wall is now just part of the landscape. And Palestinians? We're pretty much unaware of the circumstances of their everyday lives. It's all faded into the background. If you were to ask people, you know, what are the most important issues facing Israel now? Or what are the most important issues in your life now? The occupation isn't one of them. It's just off the agenda. So the idea that then you would use this conflict and even try to frame it in a positive way as to say, you know, we like football, they like football, you know, we're all people when it comes down to it. Um, I think that isn't something that would really fly now. It's almost as if they're not even significant enough to be a character, albeit an invisible character, in an advert anymore. In a way, exemplifying Nick's point, I was surprised to learn how Yossi, one of the nauseated creators of the Facebook group against the ad, feels about it nowadays. He's made a 180 in the past decade, it turns out. And today, he considers himself right-wing when it comes to the conflict. Notably absent from his current response to the ad, anything about the Palestinian side at all. Now that I watched it, I felt a little bit like, you know, emotional, like almost crying, because to see soldiers enjoying taking a break and playing is something that is, you know, you're, you're, you're grateful to them for being there for you. The Facebook group, which at its height had several hundred members, is still live. But its community has dwindled to a mere 17 Of course, this cultural shift in Israel is not necessarily the same for Palestinians on the other side of the wall. You wanted to to see the the situation from here? It's it's clear. Driving with Abdallah on the dirt road next to the wall, we pulled off to the side. We were on top of a hill and could see over the wall. He pointed at a few olive groves and above them, the new settlements on the nearby hilltops. They don't allow to the farmers to, to pass the gate to work in their land. They don't allow to the people. And they're building more and more. An ad offers a parallel reality. But the trick is to present a parallel reality that's both aspirational and recognizable. In the case of the Cellcom ad, we were invited for a brief 60 seconds to enter a reality where everyone gets along. For many Israelis, and certainly for most Palestinians, that reality was simply not one they could imagine, let alone recognize. Shahar and Selkam had set out to make an ad about the essence of Israeliness. In so doing, they inadvertently hit a nerve. 
the nerve of a country still very much struggling to come to terms with its relationship with Palestinians. Ten years later, whether you think the ad has aged well or poorly, perhaps it points to a shift in the collective consciousness of Israel. Disappearing are the noisy debates that used to erupt regularly in bars and on TV about what's the best road to a lasting peace. If the last few election cycles are a good indicator, questions about what to do with the territories and the Palestinians who live there have been overtaken by passionate arguments about political corruption, housing, and the price of cottage cheese. The latest Cellcom app, which just came out in June, is chock full of pop culture references. It spoofs a handful of Netflix shows, like the huge hit Money Heist. We see eight goofy-looking robbers in red jumpsuits and plastic face masks exiting a big city building. Their leader takes off his mask, exasperated. Oh my God, he yells at the others. How many times have I told you not to eat in these masks? They stink. It's funny, silly, and utterly apolitical. The conflict, needless to say, is not mentioned. Yoshi Fields. You can see the Cellcom ad on our site, israelstory.org. Israel says that this is not a border. The Palestinian says that it, it's not a border. So probably when we'll come back to the negotiation table, we'll decide about the future borders. But these days we had to do it, not because we like it. I hate it. We did it just to prevent the Palestinian terror from coming to Israel. The West Bank barrier has significantly reduced violence and terror. And that, of course, is very good. But one thing about walls, about fences, about barriers, is that they also hide people who are actually really close by. They make it hard to see them, to hear them, even to think about them. And that, I hope, is what in our own little way we've done in our episode today. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site. Again, it's israelstory.org. Or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Also, do us a favor. Go to iTunes, rate us, and leave a comment. Apple's algorithm will do the rest and bring us to many new ears. And while we're on the topic, if you like Israel Story, please help spread the word. We really want to reach new audiences. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, and both support the show and reach many, many people, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Before we end, I want to tell you about a podcast I love, and I think you will too. It's called Gastropod. And it's all about the science and history of food. But really, it's about the weird and wonderful things you never knew about the stuff we put in our mouths every day. Nikki and Cynthia, the two fabulous hosts, are funny and charming. And in each episode, they take us on a deep dive into the most curious topics. Like whether New York City bagels are better because of the local water. Or what scientists are discovering about the link between diet and Alzheimer's disease. Want to know why American mangoes taste so bad? And what that has to do with George W. Bush and Harley Davidson's? They've got that covered, too. 
Find Gastropod and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, gastropod.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Revita Liov, Rafi and Danny Schaffman, Yotam Michael Yogev, Mati Friedman, Marom Ginsburg-Fletcher, Clara Nastas, Ahmad Abu Ahmad, Muhammad Obidala, Joe Rashba, Natasha Westheimer, Elham Nasser Adin, Ari Rutenberg, Alon Rom, and Asaf Lieberman. And to our dubbers, David Satran and Nomi Chazan, as well as to Josh Brook, Skylar Inman, Maya Enoch, Via Sabra, Congregation Kol Neshama, and Rabbi Zari Weiss from Seattle, who let us tag along on Dani Tirza's tour. Lastly, thanks to Julie Subrin and Sarah Ivry for their wise editorial guidance. The original music in Eight Days a Week was written, arranged, and performed by our wonderful Israel Story Band, Dotan Mushonov and Ari Wenig, together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Ronnie Wagner-Schmidt, and was mixed by our dear Sela Weisblum. Additional scoring by Yochai Meital, Joel Shupak, and Blue Dot Sessions. The Wall miniseries is based on our latest live show. Thanks to everyone who made our most recent North America tour possible, including our dear friends at the Harvard Hillel, Rabbi Jonah Steinberg, Lauren Cohen-Fisher, the Brockman family, the entire Hillel staff, and Justin Zibel. And to Northwestern's Hillel, Michael Simon, Reut Sadok, Rachel Hillman, and the rest of the staff. Thanks also to Nevoshinar and Shaul Notkin. We're coming back to North America with The Wall in January 2020. So if you'd like us to come perform near you, contact us at live at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Judah Kaufman, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Scarlett DeGene, Paula Lem, Yair Farkas, Harry Sultan, Rebecca Carroll, Kayla Levy, and Anna Correa have been our wonderful production interns this year. This episode is dedicated with love to Trotsky, Yochai's sweet, smart dog, who lived a good life and will be remembered by all of us here on the team. So long, Trotsk. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with The Wall, Part 3. And that's when I saw the gap. And all I can remember was, I'm going to have a shot at this, doesn't matter what happens, at the end of the day, I'm going to go for it. So, till next time, Shalom Shalom, and Yalla Bye.
alma. 